This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. When you look back, I mean, four decades of, of doing Eagles play-by-play, when you look back as a whole, and obviously we're fresh off a Super Bowl win, but is there is there a moment that sticks out like um, specifically that, that you really love to hearken back to? February 4th, <laughs> 2018. There's nothing like that. From 94 WIP in Philadelphia, it's Wired This Way. Life stories about the people in sports, the choices they've made, and how they've achieved their success. I'm Andrew Porter. For me, a kid born in Philadelphia in 1990, there are two iconic sports voices in my lifetime. The first is the late, great Harry Callis, of course, and the second is Merrill Reese. Merrill has been the radio play-by-play voice of the Eagles for 41 years, and that's how we know him, that's how we love him. He's the biggest Eagles fan there is. But Murr, as they called him in high school, has a lot more to his story than that, which I learned about during this interview, like his love for tennis, his basketball skills, and his short stint in the Navy. Merrill grew up in Philadelphia, and thanks to his mother's love for theater, entertainment was immediately a part of his life. I had a wonderful childhood. My father, Nathan, was a dentist uh, at 441 South 56th Street, which was where we lived in West Philadelphia. The office was attached to our house. My mother uh, had been a kindergarten teacher before she was married. Uh, She was a stay-at-home mom. And she had a show business flair. And uh, as a kid, she gave my sister, who was three years younger than I, uh, and uh, I, we had we had singing lessons, dramatic lessons, dancing lessons, a lot of which I could have done without at the time. But but she dragged us to the lessons and actually dragged me to do some television commercials. I did all kinds of commercials, uh, mostly between the ages of eight and twelve. Um, I did a radio show where I actually, it was called Let's Pretend, and I used to have to memorize a 26-page script every week. Wasn't allowed to read it. I had to memorize it, and that was that was good because now I, I can memorize a 90-player roster in about 15 minutes. I guess the, the memorization work as a child, as a small child, really did pay off. And I just I grew up in a world where I just loved to play sports. And uh, my parents took me to Penn football games on Saturday afternoon. Those were in the days when Penn would draw 60,000 fans and the Eagles would draw probably 8,000 fans at what was then called Scheib Park. But Franklin Field was the place to be for Penn football because Penn was a national power and played all the big schools uh, from all over the country. So I, I loved that, but I played every sport imaginable and just 
just had those dreams as a kid of of being an NFL quarterback or of being the the guy who hit the final jump shot to win the the college basketball championship or came in as out of the bullpen. I mean, in those days, the Phillies were. I love the Phillies. They could park me at four years old next to a radio, and I could sit there and listen to an entire doubleheader. That's how mesmerized I was. And my early heroes were Phillies pitchers like Robin Roberts or uh, Kurt Simmons. Uh, Richie Ashburn was a big favorite of mine growing up. And on and on. And, of course, the Eagles in 1960 won the NFL championship. And that, but, but I remember as a little kid listening to the championship games of 48 and 49 on the radio as a little kid, but I was actually sitting in Franklin Field in a corner of the end zone watching that championship game in 1960. And then you went to uh, Overbrook High School and Temple University, and your time at Overbrook, was that more focused on um, sports or journalism or broadcasting? Or no, my, my, my all, I lived for sports. I mean, that was it. I mean, I, I went out for the basketball team as a uh, in 10th grade, and I was I was a pretty good little schoolyard basketball player with a jump shot, and I thought you know I'm not going to play much as a tenth grader, but at least I I thought I would make the team, and I uh, I, I prepared by going through I actually ran cross country uh, that year in tenth grade to prepare myself to get really into great shape for basketball, and I remember the first day of practice I came out. I pulled up. I hit a 15-foot jump shot. I looked over at the sideline at the coach, Paul Ward, and his back was to me. He didn't even look. So I came back the next time. I threw a perfect pass under the basket to a guy cutting in. Perfect assist. Looked over at the sideline. He wasn't even looking. Next day, I look at the list. I was cut, and the realization came to me at a school like Overbrook. Uh, there, There were tryouts because you had to have tryouts, but that team was recruited from all over the city. And here I am, a, a little 5'8 kid, trying to make a team that had three players who went on to play in the NBA. Wally Jones, who had a great career at Villanova and played for the 76ers for their championship team. Uh, Walt Hazard, who not only was a star at UCLA and then with the Lakers, came back and was the UCLA coach. And then Wayne Hightower was the big man, and he went on to play with the Baltimore Bullets. I was trying to make that team. Just wasn't going to happen. <laughs> but I continued to play sports. I'd go to the schoolyard and play basketball until dark every night. Uh, played football on in the Saturdays with a bunch of guys, kind of semi-organized with equipment. And I was always had to be the quarterback. And uh, loved every second of it. Loved to block. Loved to tackle. Didn't mind the contact at all, but I, I loved it all, and I, uh, I did everything I possibly could to just always be playing sports. And then at, at Temple University, your focus shifted towards broadcasting. Well, by the time I was 15 or 16, I realized that I wasn't going to one day be the Eagles quarterback. So I, I picked the next best thing, uh, taking advantage of my, my background as a, a kid doing radio and television, and going to Franklin Field uh, to watch the Eagles and looking up at the broadcast booth and seeing the great Bill Campbell. And in my, in my uh, book, in the yearbook 
from Overbrook High School, your senior yearbook. And actually, it was called the record book. It says, Mer, and that was my nickname, M-E-R-R, Mer loves sports, cars, girls, and dogs, and aspires to be a play-by-play sportscaster. So that was it. Sounds good to me. Um, then most people don't realize, but you did a short stint with the United States Navy. Yeah, I was a naval officer, naval public affairs officer when I came out of college. And I was uh, when I came out, I was a lieutenant senior grade. I was commissioned as an ensign and uh, then spent some time at CHINFO, which is the Office of Information at the Pentagon. So I was involved in, in naval public affairs. But that was a great experience, and I loved it. But then I came out of the service, and it was time to get a job. And I, I didn't. I had a lot of confidence at that time. I had broadcast all of the Temple games. Uh, when I was at Temple, we had a line at the Palestra broadcast line. So I not only did Temple games when I became sports director at the end of my freshman year, I did every Big Five game played for three years. I mean, they played all of the Big Five games were at the Palestra, and there was a Palestra doubleheader every Wednesday night. There was a pen game every Friday night. There was a Palestra doubleheader every Saturday night. One Saturday, there was even a high school triple-header playoffs, and I did a triple-header of high school games on a Saturday afternoon and a double-header of college games at night. So I did sat there and did five straight basketball games. So I did that. I did Temple baseball. I did Temple football. So then after my naval experience, I was full of confidence, and I thought, uh, I thought after coming out of the Navy that uh, I'd go out and I'd get my first job. And I went to all the Philadelphia stations, and there was nothing there. And then I remember auditioning in Coatesville, and the station manager listened to me, and he said, you can't start here. You've got to start someplace small. Now, this was Coatesville. I figured, what? Where, where can I find someplace smaller? Then I found out that the station manager in Pottstown was looking for somebody to do a high school football game on a Saturday afternoon. I went, and I visited him. Herb Scott, his name was. And he looked at me and he said, I'd give you a chance, but you look like you're about to have a nervous breakdown. I had no confidence. And because I had been out of the service over a year, still looking for a job, people used to say to my mother, Helen, is your son ever going to work? And, um, but she was, you know, my, my folks, my mom was great about that. So I went on and, um, I, I said to the station manager, you're probably right. I went home and on Friday afternoon, he called me and he said, listen, I can find absolutely nobody else to do this game. It's between you and dead air. And so on Saturday, I went to Pottstown, and I did a game between Pottsgrove and Springford. And as we, as the game, as I started, I was pretty shaky. And then as the game went on, I started to feel more and more confident and finished the game. And on Monday, he called me and offered me a job, and a full-time job. And I worked for seven days a week. I did the disc jockey show. I did a show called Highland Garden of Memories where they played organ music and I read death notices. I mean, you name it, I did it. I did a Little League game every night uh, in the summer. And um, that was the start of my career. The good news was Merrill had a full-time job. The bad news was, A, he wasn't making much money, and B, 
he wasn't working in sports. Instead, Merrill was playing tennis, teaching tennis, and doing news radio in the afternoon. So he was busy, but he wanted to do sports. So what's the best way to get your boss to agree to let you do something? Well, do it for free. By the way, yeah. seven days a week, $65 a week. Wow. That was my salary. Wow. Um, and, and then you parlay that into more work at... at Places like WIP, well, WBCB, not you know? so fast. Okay, because I was in Pottstown for a year. Okay, then I came up here to WBCB, mm-hmm. which is uh, the station in Levittown where we're recording this at right now, where I am now part owner, managing partner, and general manager. Uh, I was here for two years, mostly doing news, and then I went into WWDB. Uh, which was an FM station connected with WHAT, which was a rhythm and blues station. And I went there as a newscaster. And I did news every day from noon until 8 o'clock at night. I do the the hourly and half-hourly news. And um, to supplement my income, I was still not making a whole lot of money. I would give tennis lessons in the morning. Tennis was a sport that I spent a lot of time playing. I played a lot of tennis tournaments uh, during the summers in college. Uh, I played six hours a day. Wow. And so I, I gave lessons for $7 a half hour, and that was a, not a bad rate at that time. And then I'd, I'd quickly run into the station, and I'd do the news all afternoon. So I kept asking the station manager, I said, I think I'd love to come in and do sports in the morning. And he said, this isn't a sports station. It's primarily a jazz station. That's what DB was in those days. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sid Mark, who is still uh, doing Fridays with Frank. Sid was the big afternoon star. And uh, I would do the news. And they said, it's not a sports station. So I said, well, listen, I have an idea. How about if I come in? And do the sports at 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock, and 9 o'clock in the morning. Five minutes of sports for free. Those were the magic words, for free. And they said to me, you know what? Sports might work here. So I went and I did the, I did the sports every morning for free. 9 o'clock, I'd run home, give three tennis lessons at the court's nearby, and and run back and do the news all afternoon. That's wow. what I did. After a, a number of years, uh, I found I heard that, that WIP uh, was looking for somebody, actually uh, a guy by the name of Al Schreier, a dear friend, who was the sports information director at Temple, contacted me, and he said, WIP is looking for a summer replacement. Charlie Swift, their sports director, does – um, it takes a month's vacation every year uh, in the summer, at the beginning of summer. He was the play-by-play voice of the Eagles. They said that uh, he's going on vacation. This was in January. Uh, they they asked, I can, why don't you call Dean Tyler, the program director, and, and get an audition? And I did, and I got an audition, and I auditioned. And I was, was, that? was that like a quick audition like what was no uh, i went in and i and they gave me copy and i wrote up the sports copy okay. and I, um, I i put together a a five-minute sports guest mm. and recorded it and i understood that i was one of over 90 people because uh, wip 
was the place to be. That was the that was the great place. And it still is. It, it, those those are magic call letters, WIP. I mean, that was that was one of the leading stations in America. And I'm proud to say it still is. I love everything about WIP. And so uh, I auditioned, um, but with little hope. I mean, right. when you're dealing with people were coming all over, from all over the country to audition for this morning sports opportunity. So I auditioned, and I didn't hear anything, and that was January. And then in March, I was called out of the blue. I had long dismissed it from my mind and said, would you come down and do another audition? And I came down, and I did another audition and didn't even talk to the program director and went came, went home didn't hear anything about it and so April went by and May went by and I figured I didn't get it and then suddenly the first week of June I got a phone call and they asked me to come back to WIP so I figured wow I'm still alive in this job so I was sitting in the lobby waiting to see the program director and Charlie Swift who was the man I the, the, who was taking the vacation sports director at WIP came into the lobby and he said come here kid so I got up he walked me down the hall he walked me into the newsroom over to a desk he said when I'm gone next Monday here's where you'll be doing your sports from I said what he said oh they didn't tell you uh, you've got the job so I had a month at WIP, one month. I went back to WWDB. I was willing to give up my full-time job just for one month at WIP. But they said I didn't have to, that I could just not do my sports, do the morning sports at WIP, and do the afternoon news at WWDB. So I came back to WIP, and I was scared to death because... Here I was at the big station doing sports. That's number one. Number two, the disc jockey on WIP at the time was Ken Garland. Ken Garland had the largest audience of any personality. He had been a star. Sounds like a star. That, that, that I grew up listening to Ken Garland as a kid. Mm-hmm. And I knew that Ken Garland was... He wasn't in the newsroom where I did the sports, but he was in his own studio down the hall, but he was going to hear exactly what I did. And if Ken Garland didn't like me, he could make one phone call, and I was done. So I knew I was I was not only doing sports for the whole Philadelphia audience, but to Ken Garland, who was listening to me. So I I got up my carriage, and I, and I got through that, that I gave it everything I had on that first sportscast at 6.05 on a Monday morning. And then I took a deep breath, and I had to say, it's 10 past 6 on WIP, time for the start of the Ken Garland Show, just like that. And then I pushed the button, and I heard nothing but dead air for about three seconds but those three seconds sounded like three hours to me. And all of a sudden, Ken Garland came on, and he said, Wow, if I were Charlie Swift, I would hurry home from vacation. And by the time I left that building, 
they had signed me to do the pre and post game show and the coaches show. Wow. And my career was off and running at that point. Wow, that must have been a pretty cool experience. It was amazing. For you. It was amazing. We all catch breaks in life. Some people fail to capitalize on them. Some make the best of their luck, but others turn that luck into gold. And that's exactly what Merrill Reese did. And then how did the Eagles come into play, and how did that whole thing unravel? Well, that was a long, long five years mm-hmm. where I did nothing but pre- and post-game shows. And, Were you getting frustrated? Uh, at the, no. I, well, I, I was doing pre- and post-game shows. WWDB mm-hmm. had become a talk show then, and I had gone back and been sports director, and I was doing Penn football. So I was, I was still doing things. Uh, and and then um, uh, something very strange happened. I had done the Ed Kayat show. Ed Kayat was the coach of the Eagles, and uh, the uh, that that first year, and he got fired after that and moved on. And four years down the road, I was still doing pre and post game shows, not going to the games, just from the studio. And I got a phone call on Saturday afternoon. And it was Ed Kayat. And he said, Merle, he said, I'm back here in town because the Eagles were playing the Lions the next day. He was the defensive coach of the Lions. Mm -hmm. He invited me to meet him at the Marriott for dinner. So I had dinner with Ed, and we talked about the game. And we talked, tell me all about the Lions. And I'm thinking to myself, well, this is this is amazing. I know all about the Detroit Lions, but I'm not going to – I can't use this on the pregame show and the postgame show. So I went home, and I woke up the next morning set to go to WIP. All of a sudden, I got a phone call from Dean Tyler, who was the program director. And Dean said to me, Al Pollard's sick. Go to the stadium. You're doing the color with Charlie Swift. So I went to the stadium and I did the color for that game. Well, I was just loaded with information. I knew all about the Lions <laughs> from, from Ed Kayat the night before. And the broadcast went really well. Next year, I was back doing the, back doing the, the, the pre and post game show. At the end of that season, Al Pollard retired. And so now we go into the 77 season and they hired me to do the color, which Almost never happens to a broadcaster. It's always a former player or a coach. Right. But based on that one live experience, I did the color. And then with two games to go, uh, we got off the plane from Dallas the week before, and Charlie said to me, see you next week, kid. And I said, right, Charlie. And uh, and we were certainly friendly, not social friends, but we got along very well. He was always very nice to me. I learned a lot watching him do the play-by-play. And on Tuesday morning, I was getting set to go. I, I, I normally would get up. I would have the disc jockey at WWDB call me at 4.30 in the morning, and I'd run over to the station and do the morning sports. This time... I get a phone call, and I look at the clock, and it's 2.30. And I picked up the phone, and it was a guy named Tim Early, who was a friend of Charlie Swift's. And he called me, and I answered the phone, and the chilling words that came out of his mouth were, Charlie's dead. And turned out that Charlie had taken his own life. Oh, wow. And I don't know any of the 
whys and wherefores or anything else, but he had he had taken his own life. And I got up and I went to WWDB and I did an obituary and a commentary about Charlie Swift. And at 9 o'clock when the switchboard opened, uh, I got a phone call from Dean Tyler. And he said to me, you're doing the play-by-play Sunday. Go get a color man. And I got to know, as I mentioned, WWDB was the FM station. The AM station was WHAT, which was a rhythm and blues station. And many of the many of the African American athletes who were in town would come in to visit with the disc jockeys. So I got to become very friendly with the Phillies, Richie Allen, and and the the disc jockey was Sonny Hobson, the mighty burner, and he was great to me. And and one of his friends was Herb Adderley, who's a Hall of Fame defensive back with the Packers, then went on to the the Cowboys. And Herb lived in Philadelphia, so I grabbed Herb. And the two of us did the last two games of the 77 season. After that, there were thousands of auditions because people all over the country wanted that job. And it wasn't until the following spring that I got a call in the middle of the afternoon telling me that WIP was hiring me as the full-time sports director, play-by-play voice of the Eagles, and the rest, as they say, is history. Somber circumstances, but later on when you got the job, I mean, what was that feeling like? I mean, it was like you made it? Well, it it kind of was. It was an amazing feeling. I, I would have rather have had the job under any other circumstances because uh, not out of a tragedy, but um, but uh, time had gone on. Right. And I would have dreams. Um, I would have dreams that winter that, that WIP had called to tell me that, uh, they had moved in another direction, and I would wake up the next morning feeling very, very relieved that it was just a dream. And other times, I would get the have the dream that they were hiring me, and I would wake up the next morning disappointed that it was only a dream. I really didn't have the job. Wow, that's amazing. Well, what we were doing remember. at WWDB, we were doing a show at the old truck, which was the burlesque house, mm-hmm. for our listeners because they were closing it, and they gave us a whole skit to do, and we went out and did it till late at night and uh, with all of our audience there. And then uh, I would run home and catch a few hours sleep. When they called me, I still had to do the Friday night show at the truck, um, I got that call, and, and I was in a deep sleep, and Bruce Holberg was the program director at the time, and he said, Merrill, congratulations. You are our new sports director and play-by-play voice of the Eagles. And, and it was a, not only was it a dream, but it was, just, it, was, it was just everything I've ever thought about in my whole life. And so I went in that Saturday uh, to the program director, uh, to visit him at his house. His name was Wynn Moore, who was also on the air, the morning man. And I said, Wynn, I just wanted to let you know and give you two weeks' notice that I'm going to WIP. And he said, great. Uh, he said, I'm happy for you. They were wonderful. So I gave my notice. And Monday afternoon after I got off the air at WWDB, I was going to WIP to sign my contract. Mm-hmm. And I was driving down the expressway, And suddenly I broke out into a cold sweat, and I thought, what if I dreamt it? What if I just gave two weeks' notice, and 
dreamt the whole thing that it really didn't happen because I had so many dreams. But fortunately, this was for real. Merrill has been married to his wife, Cindy, for 39 years, almost as long as he's been the voice of the Eagles, but not quite. They have two very successful children, and they will become grandparents for the first time in October. And when I asked Merrill to look back on his career, nothing beats what happened just four months ago. I, I have a wonderful wife. Cindy and I will be married 39 Where years. Did, did you guys meet at Temple? No, oh. we met afterwards. Okay. Afterwards. Okay. Uh, Cindy's a little bit... <laughs> A little bit younger, but uh, Cindy and I uh, have been this this June. We'll have been married thirty nine years. We like the kid and say it's really only it's 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 really only nineteen and a half if you don't count football seasons. But uh, I've had the most wonderful, supportive, loving wife that anybody could ever have. I, I honest to goodness, she's great, and she even plays golf. So that's that's great. We have two wonderful children. I have a son, Nolan, who is the movies, right? Nolan is a was the visual effects editor of Captain America, Gone with the Galaxy, and the recently released Rampage with Dwayne Johnson, The Rock. So he's out in Hollywood, uh, and he he shows up on the road a lot and keeps our stats from time to time. So and, and was with me in the booth for the Super Bowl. Wow! So he's so, always oh, a big football oh, fan. Yeah. fan. Yeah. And Ida, our daughter Ida, mm-hmm. is uh, is now married. Uh, she's been married for several years, and uh, she and her husband uh, John are expecting our first grandchild. And we know it's going to be a little boy because she came over to the house with a golf ball and said, "Dad, would you hit this in the backyard?" And I took out a wedge. And I hit it and exploded and blue powder came out. <laughs> and so this October, Ida and John are going to make us first-time grandparents. When you look back, I mean, four decades of, of doing Eagles play-by-play, when you look back as a whole, and obviously we're fresh off a Super Bowl win, but is there is there a moment that sticks out like um, specifically that, that you really love to harken back to? Or was it, that, or was it the Super Bowl? February 4th, <laughs> 2018. <laughs> Our Super Bowl champions, Eagles fans everywhere, this is for you. Let the celebration begin. There's nothing like that. If you're asking me for my favorite game of all time, single game, okay. other than the Super Bowl. Okay. Other than the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. it's I had a lot of them that went up with the miracle, the, the Herman Edwards mm-hmm. fumble, with the, the uh, recovery, the Joe Pizarchik fumble, and I had other great games. But my favorite was still December 19th, 2010, Eagles at the Giants. Eagles so bad that you, you just felt at that point that, that I gave the score at halftime. I said something like the Giants 21, the Eagles are still at their hotel. And then they came back, and Michael Vick marched them downfield. And then Michael, then they recovered an onside kick, and Vick Vic performed that was the best half of quarterbacking i've ever seen and then they came all the way back in the giant stadium as michael vick hit jeremy macklin inside the left pylon to tie that game giant stadium was silent and the defense held the giants one more time and the giants punter his name was matt dodge went back to punt and mike quick said no way is he punting it to deshaun jackson deshaun looks up he muffs it he picked it up. Jason Avant threw a big block downfield. The Red Sea parted, 
and Deshaun Jackson ran and started dancing at the one-yard line, and I'm thinking, just get into the end zone, and he did, and, that's and the game of, was um, over. One of your, if my, if may I say, one of your most memorable calls. It I was don't amazing. Care if he jumps, dies, dies uh, whatever. Unbelievable. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> Great moment. That, so that would be the great game. Any any regrets or what ifs when you look back? Um, you had the, Navy, the short Navy stint. Do you ever think like, what if I would have did this or what if I would have done that? Or, or is this exactly your path? I have no regrets. I have no regrets. And I, and, and I have no desire to ever retire because I love this so much. I hope to do it for many, many years to come. Uh, so I, I love it. It's everything I thought it would be and more. I've had numerous opportunities to do network television, and um, every time the, the the dream is right here. This is what I'd rather do than anything else in the world, in front of the best, passionate, most appreciative fans that that anybody could ever have uh, for the t- team I grew up loving. So I have no regrets. I guess if they were regret, it's that the Eagles didn't win the Super Bowl in two thousand and four. Uh, I was I was speaking at a leadership conference a number of weeks ago at the Bucks County Courthouse, and uh, the speaker before me asked all the people, uh, "What did you find out about your job that you didn't know?" Uh, that was one question, and why are you in the job that you're in? So when I got up to speak, I said, "Well, to answer my predecessor, why I'm in the job that I'm in." It's because I couldn't be the Eagles quarterback. And number two, what did you find out about your job that you didn't know when you began? And that is that it would take me 41 years to broadcast the Super Bowl championship. Merrill Reese, the Philadelphia Eagles. Thanks again for listening to Wired This Way. Please subscribe and rate the show on Apple Podcasts and iTunes Tweet me about the show at A-N-D underscore Porter. If you'd like to sponsor the podcast, please email me at andrew.porter at entercom.com. That's E-N-T-E-R-C-O-M dot com. Thanks again to Eric the Turtle Golden who helped produce the show. Coming up next is the former Michigan State slash Pro Bowl Eagles linebacker Ike Reese. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.